No matter what you're doing right now, stop and spend the next 35 seconds listening to these next three film clips. Survivors tell us their story not because they want to weaken us, not because they want pity, but because they want to strengthen us in our commitment to human dignity and human decency, in our commitment to the sanctity and sacredness of all human life. Yeah, we're different. Yeah, we're up here. We're up here in the country. We're in Appalachia. But we learn from each other, and that's what life is about, accepting people for who they are. When he walked into the Oval Office, he had a lot to learn. He was the future. He was next. The great senator from the state of Massachusetts, John that's the work of Carmel, Indiana's Ashton Gleckman. At the ripe young age of 23, yes, 23, Ashton has produced and directed three documentaries chronicling world history and the human spirit. Our conversation with this tremendously talented artist is one of those can't-miss podcasts. Get to know Ashton Gleckman, a passionate, dynamic, young Indiana filmmaker, on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast. Hello and welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick. Ashton Gleckman is a 23-year-old filmmaker, born and raised in Carmel, still lives there. Ashton first followed his artistic instincts by making music. He formed a band at the age of 10. His mom thought he was going to be the next Eddie Van Halen. Well, Ashton also had a passion for telling stories, produced his first documentary about the Holocaust at the age of 18, then followed that up with an up-close look at life in Appalachia in the film The Hills I Call Home. Now, Ashton Gluckman's latest creative work is hitting big time. His docuseries Kennedy about the life of JFK begins airing on the History Channel November 18. And I'm pleased to be joined on the podcast this week by Ashton Gluckman, a Carmel filmmaker uh, who... Uh, is a very busy guy, a very popular guy these days. Ashton, thanks for taking the time to join me. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, lots we can talk about here. An eight-episode documentary, Kennedy, chronicling the life of John F. Kennedy, the nation's 35th president, premiering on the History Channel. Uh, this is a unique look at the life of JFK, taking a, a unique uh, approach to this. But what I want to get to first, because this uh, this documentary, I think, is is fascinating, is this is your third documentary following uh, pieces you did on the Holocaust and also life in the Appalachians. So you have these three high profile documentaries under your belt. You are 23 years old <laughs> and your first documentary yeah. uh, on the Holocaust, you, you did it at age 19. I don't know yeah. where to begin with this, but how, how did you make it happen at such a young age? Well, I've always been a part of that sort of film school. I remember when I was young, I used to listen to a lot of interviews, and I still do, of directors that I admire. And one of those people were Quentin Tarantino. And Quentin Tarantino famously had this perspective of you learn as you do. So you just sort of have to like go out into the field, be uncomfortable, and just be totally flexible to learn on the job. So I remember when I went out to make my first film, which was We Shall Not Die Now, uh, I was 18 and then I turned 19 when I started, uh, when it was released. 
And I was literally out in the middle of Poland with a camera that I was, you know, had rented from a local camera store. And once it got into the edit, I was basically, you know, um, learning as I was creating. And that was basically the best learning experience I could have. Um, but that's that's been the process so far is it's just I have these ideas for stories that I feel really passionate about. And I try to use documentary and also just film as a medium to basically tell stories that I care about. And um, each one of these films so far and the films that I do in the future are, are going to be stories that are personal in some way. Yeah. And that I feel like are are have, have some kind of uh, resonance in, in the world we live in right now. Learn by doing. I think that's. Uh, I think that's. Uh, that's great. Quentin Tarantino. Other other folks that you have kind of uh, modeled your your early your young career after. Yes. So I've been a huge Stanley Kubrick fan from the time I was very young. So I've always loved his knack for detail in terms of his films. He's someone who has a hold on every detail, whether it's visual, whether it's music. So I've always admired his work in Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey. Barry Lyndon, films like that. And also Ridley Scott is, is a huge titan for me just because of the amount of work he's produced, but also his knack for art and visuals and creativity. I've always loved his work as well. Where did you get this passion uh, for film, for filmmaking? And, and I, I would I would also, I guess, add to that for learning and, and really immersing yourself you know, in the process. Well, I am I'm very lucky. I have these parents that have always loved movies and also have always loved music. So I remember being six, seven years old and first seeing Gladiator <laughs> and basically just being absolutely astonished by that opening 10 minute battle sequence. I'll never forget just like witnessing that for the first time. And film is one of those amazing art forms and, and mediums where it's all about immersion. When you go into that movie theater and the lights come down or you're, you're sitting there and you're in a great show that you love and you're just caught in the dialogue and the story, there's nothing like that sense of being able to escape. And so from a very early age, I was going to the movies with my parents like every week uh, and we would see all the latest movies. And also the same thing for music. I grew up with Pink Floyd and The Carpenters and Steely Dan and like all these bands and yeah. artists. So I was very lucky that I had parents that loved this stuff and really caught me on to it. And you were actually, you began really kind of in the music, uh, on the music end of things, right? As I was doing a little research, right. you played, uh, you sang, played guitar in a rock band and actually recorded an album, right? In Nashville? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little weird. So I started out basically playing guitar and then I formed a band when I was 10, either 10 or 11. And I was at a, a school camp and I formed a band and recorded my first CD when I was 13 in Nashville. And it was in 2014 when I sort of had this reawakening moment where I decided that I wanted to pursue film scoring and fell in love with the John Williams and, and uh, Hunt Zimmers of the world and decided that that was my avenue. And it was only after a really good stint in that, and I'm, I'm still working in that field, that I decided to introduce filmmaking, specifically documentary filmmaking, into uh, the equation. And you you're really into that 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 connection between music and filmmaking and and the role that music yeah. plays in the whole storytelling process, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I've always seen like film, you know, visuals are one thing, and then music is another thing. But when you put them together, it creates this almost dreamlike. It's it's a remarkable experience putting music and film together. And when you look at some of the greatest films in history, whether it's Lawrence of Arabia 
or The Shining or whatever. Whenever you look at these films and you see how the music plays into the narrative and the story and the characters, it just helps to enhance and really bring out so much dimension in those films. All right, let's talk about your most recent work, Kennedy, an eight-part docuseries uh, will be premiering on the History Channel beginning November 18. Start us off, Ashton, with your the kind of the genesis for uh, what inspired you to uh, to create uh, this documentary on on John Kennedy. It was in the middle of 2020, and as we all know, it was a it was a really distressing year, full of a lot of anxiety, full of a lot of distress, and we would turn on the TV and. I would turn on the TV and every single time it was one depressing thing after another. And it was just difficult. And at the time I was 19 and I wanted to try to find a story that had some semblance of hope and unity. And I also have been noticing, you know, over the last few years, how divided America is in terms of the political parties. And I looked back at this remarkable story and I remembered, you know, being a young kid in school and seeing the footage of JFK giving the inaugural address saying, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And seeing this amazing color film of this young, charismatic guy who had a great skill for oratory and inspiration. And I was like, you know what? We need a little bit of this right now. We need a little bit of that sense of we don't have Democratic or Republican problems. We have American problems. And, you know, John F. Kennedy was someone that knew that. He knew how to how to differentiate partisan politics from the sense of aspiration for the country as a whole, things that we needed to do in order to move ahead. And, um, you know, whether it was looking at space or looking at the Peace Corps or uh, trying to pull the world back from a nuclear conflict during the missile crisis. So I decided, you know what, let's let's go full force into Kennedy and it's going to be a big project in the long one. But you know what? It'll be worth it. So that was sort of how I looked at it. Well, as you as you kind of mapped it out on how you were going to approach this, you know, there are literally, uh, I think, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of of books, of of, of movies, documentaries on JFK, mm-hmm. uh, the vast majority on the assassination. You have decided to take a different approach when folks tune in to watch uh, Kennedy. What are they going to see? Well, I think for a lot of people, and especially younger people, they get into the story of JFK through Dallas. I think a lot of people, when they hear JFK, they think of JFK assassination. And one of the things I wanted to do was take a step away from that and basically go back to the very beginning of the story and almost feel like you're living out his life with him. So over these eight hours, you're basically going to follow him for being a young kid in school, all the way to being in the war, getting into politics, sort of climbing the political ladder. And all the while experiencing all of the things that were going on in the world at the time from the you know Second World War, the uh, Cold War, which is probably the biggest player in terms of the, the context of where the show takes place. So I think that that was the attraction for me is basically trying to get inside his head and live out this amazing life through his perspective and take a step away from the the, the tragedy of Dallas, which we all know about. We've all seen the billions of documentaries about it. So I wanted to introduce something different with it. People are really going to learn about John Kennedy, the man, the person. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I think more specifically, the three-dimensional person. Kennedy was a notoriously enigmatic person from our perspective today, but also from the people that knew him at the time. When you listen to a lot of people that knew him, just as a friend, they would describe someone who didn't always completely show 100% of himself at any moment. He had this amazing 
uh, sense of curiosity about the world. He had a really great mind and love for reading and stuff like that. But he also had this enigmatic quality that, you know, he he was an introvert. He liked spending time by himself. He was someone that, you know, of course, we know about his personal life, which is very well documented, which we get into in the show. But I found that part really interesting about Kennedy, that personal touch about who he was as a person. Yeah. What what would you find interesting? What, what are folks going to find interesting about that personal aspect? Mm. Well, first of all, it is interesting the fact that he does strike us as a very charismatic, extroverted kind of person. But when you actually dig into his real life and his personality, he was someone that that was at his core an introvert. He liked. He famously, you know, said this at a dinner party in January 1960. I prefer being on a plane reading a book not, instead of talking to the person next to me. I prefer eating dinner at my house and going out to a restaurant. He was someone that literally could spend days just immersed in books, reading book after book after book. He was a speed reader, so he basically would get through 10 newspapers every single morning. So this was someone that even though he had a remarkable skill for people, he also loved spending time alone you know, spend a lot of time in, in his fascinations with history and politics and uh, loves traveling the world and experiencing the world. Talk about the process in doing this. Anything that surprised you? I know, I know these kinds of things, I'm, I'm sure once you get into them from a, from a time perspective and otherwise, it, it probably just kind of, it grows and grows. How, how significant? How many people did you talk to and any stories uh, along the way of, of any, any of the folks who, who gave you time to talk about JFK? Yeah. So for, for this specific documentary, one of the things that I thought could set it apart from maybe other JFK documentaries before, it's just trying to get the widest variety of people that are being interviewed on camera. So instead of just going after the historians, I also wanted to go after, you know, people that were on the ground during the Bay of Pigs invasion or, you know, space historians that specialize in that subject um, and have written books on it or Cold War historians. I spoke to, uh, um, Serhi Polky at the uh, Harvard University, who wrote a remarkable book on um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I interviewed him in the courtyard uh, right outside the university. So I tried to just meet with as many people as I could. And the thing that I loved the most about the process was every single night before interviewing these people, sometimes there were two or three interviews in one day, because we did you know, all the interviews in Washington, D.C. over the span of a week, all the interviews in New York City over the span of a week. And I would be reading their books the night before and basically researching them so that when I sat down for that interview, I was well read on, on everything they've, they've written about and was fully prepared. And I feel like that was really the key to it is that through these 170 hours of interview material that I, that I captured, I tried to show up to every interview prepared, ready to go, and sort of so that I could get inside their mind in a way, which was which was a, a really enjoyable experience. Does a project like this ever become daunting? I mean, you, you know, you get into it. There's so much you can you can do, so much you can pursue, so many different people you can talk to, and putting it all together. Does it ever become a bit overwhelming? Well, it's that great quote. You know, if you're not scared by it, then it, it doesn't seem like it's an aspiration that you should that you should go after. Because yeah. it's, I think that there is there is something special about sort of going into the unknown, at least for us personally, whether it's people that want to climb big mountains they've never climbed before, or people that want to go into space. And I looked at this project from the beginning, and I had no idea that it was going to be three years. It was going to be 170 hours of interviews. It was going to be day after day editing, bringing that 170 hours down to eight episodes, which was probably the most difficult 
part of the entire thing was just finding out what I needed to get rid of and what I needed to keep and forming that story and crafting it. So if I had known all the steps to it at the very beginning, you know, it would have been a lot more tricky for me <laughs> to sort of go into it yeah. <laughs> with that enthusiasm. Yeah. It was going to be a big one. Yeah. Talk about the process for those who who, who aren't aware, and, I, and I'm not, you know, getting picked up by the History Channel. I mean, that's that's quite an accomplishment yeah. in and of itself. How, how does that process, how did that process come about? So basically, I was working on the process by myself for about a year and a half. So I had shot the entire show uh, myself, and I had one cinematographer who was with me and then one production assistant. But in many cases, I was picking up the cameras myself and shooting the interviews. So I would captured all the footage, and I had created basically a 14-hour rough cut of the show that was my basically had everything in it that I wanted to put in it. And I was able to get that into the hands of uh, Radical Media, who are a production company in New York City. And I was introduced to uh, the executive producer there, John Kamen and Dave Sorelnik. And from there, we sort of ran off and we got to know each other really well. And they're really amazing people. And they produced the film, The Fog of War, which is like one of my all time favorite docs. So we then took the series as it was in that for- in that form to Los Angeles and started bringing it around. And we showed it to all the various distributors and and streamers and networks. And when I met History, it just sort of clicked. It, immediately, I knew it was, it was going to be a perfect partnership because they have a huge passion for History and their entire team there are, are very well versed in it as well. And then this entire year, basically since February, we've been working with History with Radical to uh, finalize the show and to get it down into its form and uh, just turned in the final product actually a couple of weeks ago. So yeah. it's been nonstop ever since summer 2020. That's, that's, a, that's an amazing story. But again, this is your third documentary, your first, We Shall Not Die Now on the Holocaust. You uh, put that together at the age of uh, 18 and then 19 uh, when you released it. What do you remember about that process, really, that first uh, big, big project of yours? Well, what I remember about the, that process was the experience of getting to travel to those camps in Poland changed my life forever. I went by myself because I wanted it to be a personal journey. I obviously have Jewish heritage and I grew up with the story of of the Shoah. And I think out of any other historical subject in my life, that one has been the most personal. And there's still a lot in terms of film and and that kind of thing that I need, that I want to explore, that I need to explore in that, in that subject. But when I went into the gates of Auschwitz or when I went to Treblinka or Kelmno in Poland, or walked the streets of the Krakow ghetto where they used to be. That was one of those experiences where, first of all, I knew that I needed to make films and documentaries and, t- and tell stories because I realized history is in all of us. It's it's it's, it's echoes. And um, when I was walking around these places and I would see actual places where the where this stuff happened, there's nothing like that. And hmm. I said, whatever I can do in, in the medium of film to try to bring this history and all these things that happened and make them accessible for people so that they can appreciate it and then understand it and empathize with it. That was what I wanted to do. So that first film, We Shall Not Die Now, hooked me on mm-hmm. wanting to be a filmmaker and a storyteller. I'm just so grateful for that experience of that first project, being such a heavy subject for sure, but also just being a learning experience as and well. And you say, yeah, learn, learn by doing. And you literally did that mm-hmm. there, going there alone, going there by yourself, right? Yeah. To, to experience it. Uh, in in a in a special way to you, 
Exactly. And I was I was getting lost in train stations. And I remember at one point I got dropped off in the middle of a field because the driver didn't know I couldn't speak Polish and he only spoke Polish. And the amount of stuff that happened during that shooting trip was was amazing. But that whole experience sort of hardened me a bit and got me more familiar with the process. Docu- documentary filmmaking is an adventure. Filmmaking in general, really, but documentary, you're, you're spending time with real people at real locations, and it forces you to really, you know, film is it's a study of empathy, trying to empathize with stuff that has happened in history and all that. And I found that process really interesting, just trying to get into those details for that first project. How'd you come up with the, the idea for your second uh, documentary, uh, which really was focused on life in the Appalachians? How, how did that uh, idea present itself? So it's interesting. I found a Guardian article online and it basically said America's poorest town abandoned by drug, or abandoned and swallowed by drugs. And basically what I wanted to do was visit that place in person. And so I drove out with, with my dad into the middle of the Appalachian you know, mountains to Babyville, uh, Kentucky. And I walk into the town hall area and I just said, uh, Hey, do you do you have a can I speak to your mayor? I I just love to talk. And I walk in, and the mayor's sitting there with a can of Coca Cola, and he's sitting there. He says, "Oh, how you doing? Yeah, come on back to my office. We'll have a chat." <laughs> and so I'm sitting there with the mayor of this town that I read about online two days before, and he happened to be like the most beautifully kind human being I've ever seen in my life. And he took me around the entire. He took me into the haulers of Beattyville introduced me to some of the families and the people that are working as woodworkers and everything else. And I realized that the media paints a lot of these Appalachian communities in a way that I think is sort of unfair. There are struggles with drugs. There are struggles with money and poverty, but poverty of money doesn't equate to poverty of the spirit. And I found these people to be very wholesome people and actually a lot kinder than some of the people you might find in (laughs) in yeah. other parts of the country. So I found that they were really resilient and I, I decided let's go make a film. So that was my second film called The Hills I Call Home. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I would think you talk about learn by doing from a lack of a better term, from a business model standpoint, each of these projects, Holocaust, Appalachians, mm-hmm. and now Kennedy, you know, builds, builds your resume uh, in a big way for mm-hmm. what you want to do next as well. Exactly. Yeah. And I I think also throughout these experiences, I've learned a lot about, you know, there's a reason they call it the film business and not just film, because that (laughs) second part of it, basically, we love the creative part of making a film. We love filming and editing and writing the music. But in order to get to those parts that we love, we have to get through that that hurdle, which, of course, is the business part of it. That includes copyright. It includes working with attorneys to formulate contracts with investors and and all of that. So I've learned a lot over the last couple projects just about how that process normally goes. And um, I work with an attorney out of Bloomington who's who's also a producing partner, Robert Midas. And he's been sort of my my right-hand man on Kennedy, who's worked with me on a lot of the business components to, to bring the project to fruition. We're going to have much more with Ashton Gluckman ahead, uh, including uh, his path, that business uh, part of the uh, journey uh, for this young filmmaker. We'll also talk about uh, that next project, what he's got in the pipeline as well. That and much more when the Business and Beyond podcast continues.
At PNC Bank, we're committed to making a difference in the lives of our customers and communities by helping them move forward financially. As a Main Street Bank, we try to do right by our customers with every encounter. Our local teams offer personalized financial advice to help guide you in making the best decision. We're proud to be part of your community. PNC Bank. See how we can make a difference for you at PNC.com. Copyright 2022, the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. All rights reserved. And welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week is Ashton Gleckman, young Carmel filmmaker uh, who uh, is literally hitting the big time. In fact, uh, in the week ahead, beginning November 18 on the History Channel, his uh, eight-episode documentary premieres Kennedy, chronicling the life of uh, John F. Kennedy, our country's 35th president. Ashton, you have a real passion for what you do, uh, and we talked a little bit about that uh, in, in the first half of the podcast. It talked about music and that being a big part of um, uh, who you are and and how, how you began in a lot of respects. And I I read something that your mom thought for sure that you would be the next Eddie Van Halen. Is that is that correct? <laughs> well, I did. I did start in that world of guitar playing <laughs> and uh, maybe David Gilmore is, is, is one that uh, my dad hoped for because he's the biggest Pink Floyd fan in the world. But. Eddie Van Halen sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. But you are uh, fully immersed uh, in filmmaking. Kennedy, your third uh, documentary to be released right before the break. You talked a bit about, you know, the business side of filmmaking. Uh, as you said, to get to what you want to do, the fun part of it, you've got to have that business side uh, figured out as well. Is it tough to be a filmmaker in Indiana as opposed to those traditional places like New York and LA, you know, the coast, is it a challenge here or not? So I think it, there's a lot of factors that go into that. First of all, there's the factor of the studio system. So if you're working within the studio system, whether it's a universal film or a Sony film or, or Paramount, you want to work where the studios are, are situated. If you're filming in those areas, which a lot of filmmakers obviously uh, film and, sh and shoot in California and and everything, especially for scripted material, that's what, there's a lot of filmmakers that are based out West and that kind of thing. But what's interesting about documentaries is basically you go out, you capture the footage, yeah. and then where you edit, where you edit it and where you put it together, it you could do it anywhere. You could go to you could go to Antarctica and find a nice right. warm cabin and edit your entire documentary in a cabin in Antarctica. So I love that aspect. I know that Ken Burns, for example, lives in New Hampshire on the Connecticut River in like a very quiet little little house. So I think that I think that Indiana, it, it's a, it's really a pleasure to be able to wake up and just like go downstairs and, and get into the edit for a History Channel documentary and then go down into the studio and start working on the music for the show. You know, I start work every morning at, at 7 a.m. and and work usually till pretty late. And uh, to be able to do that from home and, and mm -hmm. where I'm from in Indiana, it's, it's I love doing that. Yeah, I would imagine technology plays a big role too. Technology today probably makes that even easier to just be anywhere and do what you want to do. Yes. So like we have a mixing team that did all the audio mixing that are based in London. And then our coloring team did all the grading and everything, color mastering. Um, they're based in Austria. And we could actually see real-time editing for both of those teams from computers in Los Angeles, where I am where I live in, in Carmel, yeah. and then also New York City. So we would have Zoom calls where we were all coming together around the world. And to me, that's just mind blowing that we can actually do that. But yeah, that's that's how the world's changed. I don't know if you've 
paid much attention to it, but there's been a lot of effort in recent years here in Indiana to get a a, a film and media tax credit in play mm-hmm. to help filmmakers, uh, media producers, uh, even on the digital side, film side, all those all those different things mm-hmm. to get more of that investment uh, in Indiana that has passed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good thing in your view is that is that could that be a difference maker? It absolutely is. I think great news. I also think that you know there's another production company that's been doing some really great work in Indiana over the past decade or so. Uh, Pegasus Pictures, based in Bloomington, they produce a lot of scripted and documentary uh, material, and they have a great team out there. And one of the great things about Pegasus is that they've been getting a lot of younger people involved and in, in having them participate and and working on their first film projects, which I think is really important because the only way we get more documentary filmmakers is by introducing kids and people that don't know about the process and about you know. Uh, what the career is, getting them into it. So I absolutely love that that Indiana has been putting that forth. And honestly, I just love being able to say I'm a filmmaker based in Indiana. To me, that's just a lot because um, there's a lot of filmmakers that are based in California or based in London and that kind of stuff. And um, Indiana is this, this nice, beautiful state in, in the Midwest. And uh, we've got some great people that are here and some great creatives. And so uh, it's a pleasure to to work here. Yeah, on on the business side of things, uh, too, uh, Ashton, you go have financial support, and I know you mentioned your the attorney in uh, in Bloomington. I know Eric Tobias, uh, great mm-hmm. entrepreneur here in town, High Alpha co-founder. Yes, Ben Park. You've got supporters who really have and continue to believe in you, and that's got to be an important part of the process. It absolutely is, and I think from from the very very beginning, from my first film, I decided to do the fundraising myself, which meant getting out into the field, putting together pitch materials. And it's gotten to the point now where as soon as I start developing a project, a film project, I'm putting together pitch materials from the very beginning. I'm I'm putting together pitch decks, putting research together basically so that when it comes time to present that material to investors, uh, that I have all that stuff prepared. So I'm thinking from the very beginning about you know who do I want to talk to? How do I want to present the project to them? I'll say for Kennedy, for example, I put together a 20-minute short documentary of just me sitting in front of the camera talking to people about what I wanted the series to be. And whenever I look back at it, it's so cringy to me because I hate <laughs> watching myself. But but I'm just I'm just sort of sitting there in front of the camera talking about what my plan is for the project. And I would send that around. And um, that led to a lot of the meetings I ended up having. So my, my perspective is there's no easy way to get money to make a film. The best way, though, is just to sort of make yourself uncomfortable, go out there, prepare to get rejected, but also just prepare to make some good relationships with people. And that's been what has happened over the last few projects. I've been able to to meet people like Ben Park and Dylan Joel and Buffy and, and also Eric Tobias, who has been a great partner. So, yeah. And Leslie Ackerman. So there, there's a lot of different people here. Yeah. You are obviously you're a filmmaker, but you are, I think, in so many ways in talking to you here, you're 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 an entrepreneur too. I mean, there's no question about it. And you talk about getting into uncomfortable situations, you putting yourself in those situations, dealing with rejection. From that side of things, does doubt, self-doubt, does that ever creep into your, mm-hmm. you know, into the process? You know, you're a creative guy, you feel strongly about what you do, but you're out there putting yourself on the on the line in front of other people. Does that self-doubt ever creep in? Absolutely. Absolutely. The life of an artist is a life of crippling self-doubt <laughs> until until 
your piece of art comes out and maybe you have a little bit of validation for what you've done, but you're always thinking about, are people going to like it? You know, what, what's the result going to be? I absolutely feel that way. And I also, you know, one of the things that Hans Zimmer once said, he says, whenever I'm sitting there playing a new piece of music for a director, I'm cowering in the corner because basically I'm letting my heart out, you know, when I am playing a piece of music, it's, 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 it's from my soul. And when I'm playing it to them, I'm, I'm revealing everything. So it's definitely one of those things where you're always, you know, double guessing yourself. Yep. But I think at yep. the same time, you have to take that leap of faith and just go after it. So you can't let that self-doubt get too much in the way of, of your idea. So it's a perfect balance of having the doubt and having a, a thick skin enough to take criticism and feedback. But at the same time, also just moving ahead and steaming ahead. Yep. You've been on a rocket ship here, Kennedy, your third uh, documentary, but you've already got that next project uh, in the crosshairs, if you will, in the works, Agent Number 9. And there's a connection, right, to JFK for this one. Mm -hmm. Tell us what uh, Agent Number 9 is going to be all about. So Agent Number 9 is the story of Clint Hill, who is the legendary Secret Service agent that served five presidents, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford, and with the guy on the back of the Kennedy limo in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963. So he's a remarkable, um, you know, American history legend who spent a lot of time personally with these people, whether it's JFK, Jackie, Lyndon Johnson. One of the things I did when I was interviewing him over the span of a week in April is I would just put names out there and he would say, oh, I remember him. And, you know, I would say Hubert Humphrey. And he said, oh, I remember the time that Lyndon Johnson made him cry in the back of, of, of the car. And he would remember all these things. And to me, that was just so cool that, that I was talking to a person who spent real time with these people. So th- it'll be a two-hour documentary basically following his life story, his experience in, in Dallas and the effect that that had on him personally and his mental health. But it's a much more sort of personal piece, I think, than Kennedy. And it it really dives into this one human being's experience. And the fact that he's able to tell the story himself on camera, I, I'm so I'm just so proud of him, first of all, for doing the interview over seven days. It was an incredibly rigorous process. Yeah. But um, I just finished filming that probably three or four weeks ago. So now it's all editing now. Do you have do you have a release date on that yet? Or is that uh, still to be determined? That'll most likely be mid 2024. So I know that I'm aiming to get it done in the spring and then hopefully right out the festival circuit. And, uh, you know, but I'll, I'll be taking that project around similarly to how I did it on Kennedy as well. Yeah, you know, you, you talk about a bigger than life image or person persona. Uh, I had a chance to meet him at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway four or five years ago. Yeah. I think it was at mm. it was at a race, and it was really interesting. Really a gracious guy, and but the number of people who went up and talked to him and felt, yeah. you know, emboldened or and want to en- wanted to engage with him. It was quite interesting. It is. And he is the most humble person you will ever meet. I mean, he he responded to that gunfire in literally less than two seconds and leapt off that car and ran towards that limousine and faced so many psychological issues in his life. And he only in really 2009, 2010 came public about all this uh-huh. stuff and started writing his books. So uh, he's faced a lot of ghosts in his past and he has a lot of ghosts, but at the same time, he's very resilient. And I can't wait for people to really see his whole story play out. Hey, Ashton, as we wrap up here, I want to give you a chance to do a little promo for for Kennedy. Give us the uh, kind of the hits, runs, and errors mm-hmm. on when and where it's going to be shown and what, what, what folks are going to experience, why they should really tune in 
to this uh, eight-episode documentary. So Kennedy is going to be airing on November 18th, 19th, and 20th on the History Channel at um, 8 o'clock Eastern and and Pacific. And one of the things I really hope that people get is, first of all, I just want them to have a good time watching this show and basically going back to these these moments in history and and living through and and also hopefully learning some new things about Kennedy, whether it's his experience in the war the sense of ambition that he had when he went all the way from being a congressman to president. And also, I, I want them to walk away from it, maybe a little bit inspired and with that sense of what we can do if we just work together and stop the, the name calling and the, the, yeah. the vitriol against each other and just try to unite around issues and around the things that that make us alike rather than the things that make us different. That was really Kennedy's central core theme. And also, it was a theme of public service about what each of us can sort of give back to our communities and and uh, and everything else. But it's been a very personal project of mine. Uh, and so I've been working really hard over the last three years to, to get it out. So I would be very grateful for everyone who decides to watch it. And it's going to be, uh, we can't wait to see what people think about it. Well, I know I will be watching and many others will as well. Uh, Ashton, it has been a really a treat to catch up with you on the podcast. And for those of you out there who think, uh, you can't grow creative talent in Indiana. Boy, Ashton uh, Gleckman is a, a great example uh, uh, that would refute, refute that in, in so many ways. Happy for your success at a very young age. I know much more is ahead for you, Ashton. So please, uh, please keep in touch and good luck with this and all your future projects. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Been a pleasure. All right. Ashton Gleckman, Carmel filmmaker, Kennedy, the eight episode documentary will premiere November 18. And thank you for joining us on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. It's a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment, and beyond. And you can download all of our episodes and get Indiana Business News 24-7. All you have to do is go to InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I'm Gary Dick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.